today we're going to talk lawsuits. Now, I wore one of my lawsuits. I didn't wear my shirt and tie, but this is one of my lawsuits. And yes, I am sporting Kansas City Chiefs footwear because I'm doing everything in my power to make sure we win today. Um, lawsuits are interesting and fun. Uh, uh, if, unless you're like getting sued. Um, for, for the lawyer, I, I enjoy what I do for a living. And I was trying a lawsuit in this courthouse right here. That's in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And this was a lawsuit where um, uh, I was going against a drug company. And I had already tried one case against them in Texas and, and beaten them um, pretty soundly. And so uh, we had gone up to their backyard to try the next case to prove that it wasn't that I didn't win just because I was in Texas. Now, when you try a lawsuit, before you do jury selection, the judge hears what are called motions in limine. Motions in limine. And a motion in limine is where you make a list of things that the other side should not ever be able to mention in trial. And you get the judge to rule on them ahead of time because they're so inflammatory If the other side says them, even though you object, cat's already out of the bag, jury's already heard it, and you can't, uh, you you know, you can't stick all the olives back in the jar. They're not going to fit. And so you, you go to the judge and say, judge, before we even go in there to pick a jury, don't let the other side say this. You know, for example, um... In a car wreck case, one of the lawyers will on the that represents the the person being sued will always file a motion in limine that says, "Don't let the victim, the plaintiff, mention the fact that we have car insurance." Out of fear that a jury's going to say, "Well, it's just the insurance company pay the boy." So, so those types of things are in there. Now, these are pretty standard things. Sometimes you've got something weird. You know, if you've got, uh, if I'm suing a, a, a doctor for malpractice, and that doctor's been sued five times before for malpractice, the lawyer for the doctor is going to say, don't let Lanier mention the fact this doctor's been sued five times before for malpractice, because that's not the issue. The issue is, did the doctor commit malpractice this time? Okay? That's the kind of stuff. So I'm in the Atlantic City, New Jersey courthouse, my first time to, to, to try a case there, and the other side has a motion in limine against me, and it's like, yay thick. I mean, they've listed... That they have hired some legal team to go through the transcript of every case I've ever tried and find anything that they thought might have been effective and they just try to list it there in hopes the judge won't let me say it. So I'm looking through it. I'm looking through it. And there's one of them on there that says, do not let Lanier quote the Bible. And the judge looks at it and she says, what, what, why can't Lanier quote the Bible? I mean, you can quote Shakespeare. You can quote the Declaration of Independence. Why can't you quote the Bible? It's literature, if nothing else. And the lawyer for the other side said, no, you don't understand. There's this club of people who believe the Bible. And you can't readily identify them. And what Lanier will do is he'll quote the Bible without saying he's quoting the Bible. And then people on the jury who are in the club will realize he's in the club. (laughs) And it's going to totally distort things. And I said to the judge, I said, well, look, 
you, you can't stop me. You should not be able to stop me from quoting the Bible. You're right. And I have no doubt that some of my phrases that I use uh, find their source in the Bible. They probably do because I do spend a lot of time in the Bible. Uh, I said, but as a practical matter, I can assure you, Atlantic City, New Jersey, just on appearance so far, doesn't seem to be the buckle of the Bible belt. And if I was going to quote anybody up here, I'd probably quote Donald Trump. Now, this was before he became president, and and uh, this was, you know, a number of years back. Um, and I said, but as a practical matter, I, I, I don't need to police myself. I ought to be able to say these things. And the judge said, I agree. And at this point, the other side says, judge, we have a case from the New Jersey Supreme Court that says lawyers can't quote the Bible. And if they do, it's reversible error. Judge said, well, let me see that. They hand it to the judge. They hand me a copy. I start looking at it, and I start laughing. Judge says, why are you laughing? I said, well, I said, this does not say I can't quote the Bible. What this says is I can't violate the golden rule. The golden rule says I can't ask the jury to put themselves in the same shoes as the plaintiff. I can't say, how would you feel if this were you? I'm not allowed to do that. I know I'm not. I would never do that. But it doesn't say I can't quote the Bible. In fact, what it says is, and I started reading out loud, this is called the golden rule violation based upon a premise found in the Old Testament to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I said, now, Your Honor, I think it's important for you to note that that's not found in the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament. The New Jersey Supreme Court got the reference wrong. And maybe if you had uh, lawyers who knew the Bible a little bit better, it wouldn't have this problem. The judge started laughing and she said, Mr. Lanier, you know what you can and can't do. I'll expect you to do that. I said, thank you. Lawsuits and the Bible, an interesting combination. So if we pull Hosea off the shelf and open it up, we're going to see in Hosea, God going to trial. God actually has, there are three trials in Hosea. So what I'd like to do is talk about trials in general in Israel at the time. And then I want us to look, whoops, at God in trial. And then we'll have points for home. So trials in general. If you go to Megiddo, Tel Megiddo, which is a, an archaeological ruin, you will see at the beginning of it this reconstruction of the entrance to the city. And you would come in and there would be these gates. And this was multi-chambered with three gates. And these are gates that could be barred shut in the event an enemy was coming. And they'd have to fight their way through. But they were also gates that would be open during the day. Because all of Israel that are behind the city walls would go out to do their farming, to do their uh, uh, shepherding, uh, to do their vineyarding, to do their work, to do their travel, etc. To go collect foodstuffs. All of that's done going in and out. These are people. That's a massive big gates. Those gates, if we blow it up, those gates open up to an area where you've got this big expanse. Because if the soldiers are coming and attacking the city and trying to break down the gates, then that's where you've got your army amassed ready to take them on. If you've got a situation where you've got commerce and everything, that's where it took place. So you've got this massive area just outside the gates. That, here I'll throw the real picture up of the ruins. That is where court was held. Now, a little different with Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin and the time of Jesus. But in these towns, in the era of Hosea, court was generally held in the city at the gates. 
the court system itself was overseen by an appointed judge. The judge, Deuteronomy 16, 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they'll judge the people with righteous judgment. So that's what the judges would do in the city gates where the trial would be held. Now, there were different things you could be tried for. And a lot of things that they had were not things that you you got tried for. A lot of those things, um, I see I've got an issue here. A lot of those things, uh, that needs to go up to the top. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here we go. Okay. Now, a lot of the things you could get tried for are just handled at home. The men were deemed to be the judges within their own household. But if it were something of community involvement or something that affected, you know, if the husband's accusing the wife of adultery or something like that, it would be a public trial. So I want to give you one of these, and this is one that actually, whoops, uh, comes from, here we go, a capital offense. A capital offense means that it's one that subjects you to the death penalty, capital punishment. So one of the capital offenses that God detailed was breaking covenant with God. And here's the passage. But it gives us not just insight into breaking covenant, the offense, but how the trial was set up. If there's found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden. It is told you, you hear of it, then you inquire diligently. You have a trial. And if it's true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, bring out to your gates that man or woman who's done this evil thing and stone them to death with stones on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses the one who is to die shall be put to death a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death And afterward, the hand of all your people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. A capital offense. You've got to have two or three witnesses. And the witnesses should be the ones who pick up the stones. But ultimately, the judge is to ensure that the person, that capital punishment is carried out on the person. Now, if you're reading this thinking, that's really harsh. We can discuss that in another class. But I will tell you this, that's the law that was set up. Now, within the framework of this, you can find things like 1 Kings 21 to give you an example of a trial. 1 Kings 21 is the story of Jezebel. Um, Not a nice lady, hence the reason we don't typically name our kids that anymore. There's a guy named Naboth who has a vineyard in Jezreel. It's next to the palace of Ahab, the king. Ahab's married to Jezebel. Now, Ahab says to Naboth, let me buy your vineyard. I want it for a vegetable garden. It's right next to my house. I'll give you a better vineyard for it or I'll give you the value in money. Let me buy it. Naboth said, God forbid I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab goes to his house and he is all dejected. Poor Ahab. Why does everything happen to him? 
So Jezebel, his wife, comes in and says to him, Okay, why can't you eat? What's wrong? Talk to Jezzy about it. He says, you won't believe what Naboth did. I said, give me your vineyard or money. For, give me your vineyard for money. Or, or I'll give you another vineyard. And he said, no. And Jezebel said, hey, aren't you the king? Just get up, eat, and be, help, uh, be cheerful. I'll get it, and I'll give it to you. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name. She sealed them with his seal. That's, that's called forgery. Um, she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived in that city. She wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. Makes it look like the king's really looking out for Naboth. Good guy, Naboth. I'm going to make Naboth look fancy and, and important with all of the people. What a nice king. He's clearly not bitter. He clearly has no motive for any ill will to fall against Naboth. And then set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him saying, You've cursed God and the king. Then, take him out and stone him to death. So they did. The two worthless men came in, sat opposite him. Those two witnesses brought a charge against him, saying Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside. They stoned him. Then they sent a note saying, he dead. And as soon as Jezzy heard that he was stoned and dead, she said to Ahab, hey, that thing he wouldn't sell you, he's dead. Just go get it. And he does. A capital offense, two witnesses, stone him to death. That was the trial. There's another capital offense in uh, the old law, and that was adultery. You can see in Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. you got to have witnesses. Think about the time of Jesus. Woman's caught in adultery. The witnesses are there. This woman's been caught in adultery. Law says we ought to stone her. What do you say? Of course, Jesus knows that they should have not only caught her, but they should have caught the man. They didn't bring him. Jesus also knows that they had to be eyewitnesses. So perhaps one of them was the man. But in the meantime, what are they doing watching that anyway? Jesus says, sure, let the first one without sin throw the first stone. And they all leave because the only one without sin that could throw that stone is Jesus. And he doesn't. He tells her to to go her way and to sin no more. So those are typical trials in Israel. A little different than our courtrooms today. Now in Hosea, if we go to the book, we're going to find three different trials that are spoken of in the book. Hosea, as we've already discussed, is rich in metaphors. We've talked about those in the first two classes. But beyond those metaphors, and sometimes wrapped in those metaphors, is this prevailing metaphor of a trial. Trial number one is found in Hosea 2, verses 2 through 15. And, uh, you know, this is the best we can do on this. This says a trial that says Israel has committed adultery. Now, that's a capital offense. Remember, Israel was called to be the bride for God. They had entered into a covenant relationship of marriage with God. And so Israel, as an adulterous people, the marriage is dissolved. But Israel goes on trial for committing adultery. And it starts out with the call to court. 
If you go to court today, cases get called even now. Judges will start out. Uh, I was at a hearing uh, on Friday afternoon, and the hearing began with the judge saying uh, to the court reporter and to everyone else, uh, calling case number da-da-da-da-da, so-and-so against so-and-so. Will the lawyers announce present? Mark Lanier here for the plaintiff. The call to court here is a little bit different. But it starts out with, make an accusation against your mother. The English Standard Version translates it, plead against your mother. Plead that she is not my wife and I am not her husband. The the word that's translated there, plead, is riv. Um, Riv is, can mean quarrel or fuss, but it also means plead in the sense of a pleading, a lawsuit. It's, it's, it's the start of a lawsuit. It's, um, if, if I'm going to bring a lawsuit on behalf of someone, a drunk driver runs a red light, careens into grandmother who's driving to deliver cookies to her children and just does horrible damage to grandmother. If I'm going to sue on behalf of grandmother, I have to file what in court still today is called a pleading, where I plead what happened, and that commences a lawsuit. Riv is the same idea, especially here, and it's interesting, it's got, uh, it's repeated twice, but if you take the, the, the word in the middle there, that first letter, the B, can mean against. It tells us we're using lawsuit terminology here. So plead against your mother. He's calling on the children to be the witnesses against the mom. Plead with your mother. Plural. Got multiple witnesses. Plead against your mother. And the plead is probably repeated there twice because these are not friendly witnesses. They're reluctant witnesses. They don't want to testify against mom in this courtroom. Plead with your mother. Plead. For she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. So that's the call to court. And God's got a desire God expresses his desire in the rest of that verse. Whoops. Oh, stop that. Stop that. Get to God's desire. Here it is. That she must remove her signs of prostitution from her face and her signs of adultery from between her breasts. This is conveying an idea that that she is in appearance unfaithful. That she is dressing like a harlot. That, that, that you can tell by the way she looks that she is promiscuous and not faithful to her husband. And so we have here, Israel commits adultery, a call to court. God's desire is that she put all of that away. That she not be that way. But that desire is not met. And so Hosea talks about the capital crimes punishment that's going to follow. He says, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Loaded with metaphors, but within the context of this is the judgment that she's going to have. She will be deemed committing adultery and these are the consequences of that adultery. And so we've got here an interesting setup of this lawsuit. Um, If we continue it, this crime's punishment doesn't stop there. God provides evidence and judgment. And so we see that next in Hosea 2, 4, and 5. Upon her children, I'm not going to have mercy. Because they're children of whoredom. They're not even my kids. Those children themselves are the witnesses and proof that the wife's committed adultery. Now, this is not just um, 
You know, this is why Hosea and Gomer and the whole story there needs to be understood within the framework of a metaphor of God and his people. What God is saying here is you can look at the offspring of Israel. You can look at the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And they're proof that mama has not been faithful to God. Mama being the nation of Israel. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. She said, I'll go after um, my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Israel was worshiping Baal, claiming that Baal, the providing God of the Canaanite people, was providing Israel with their water, their bread, their wool, their oil, their wine. So so Israel is giving credit to Baal for that, even as it's not coming from Baal. But that is the, the adultery that God's indicting them for. And the children do the same thing. So God says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so she can't find her paths. She'll pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She'll seek them but won't find them. She'll say, I'll go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. It won't be fruitful. You can't practice vice virtuously. You can't worship the wrong gods and get the right result. And God says he's going to put the judgment there. Israel, in their adultery, thought Baal was providing for them and was thanking Baal for that. God says, she didn't know I was the one who gave her the grain. I was the one who gave her the wine. I was the one who gave her the oil. I was the one who lavished on her silver and gold. And they used what I gave them to worship an idol. To commit adultery. They took what I gave them and instead of saying thank you and worshiping me, they took it. And flipped it and chased after other gods. God says, therefore, I'm taking back my grain in its time. I'm taking back my wine in its season. I'm going to take away my wool and my flax, which I gave her to cover her nakedness. And I'll just uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one will rescue her out of my hand. And I'll put an end to all of her mirth, all of her feasts, all of her new moons, all of her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Look, I gave her these things. She took them from me and committed adultery against me and used them to worship fake gods and idols that satisfied her. And so I'm taking it away. If that's where she wants to go, let her go. But she ain't going with my stuff. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages. This is what Baal's given me because I've worshipped Baal. I'll make them a forest. The beasts of the field will eat them. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with with her ring and her jewelry after her lovers and forgot me. I mean, this is kind of harsh. But it's appropriately harsh for the crime. So we've got the evidence and we've got the judgment And then at the end, there's a surprise final judgment. God's bringing the trial to a close. Are you ready for it? Look at this final judgment. Therefore, behold, 
I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. God says, I'm going to allure her. I'm going to woo her. I'm going to bring her into the wilderness. That you know, that's uh my wife and I were talking about some friends who were going through some marital difficulties. And I asked my wife, I said, you knew them when they first got married. What did they find in each other that they loved? I wonder if there's any way to tap back into that. I was talking to one of our daughters, Gracie. Uh, when she was in high school and I was talking to her. I said a friend of mine's got a daughter who just seems to be way off the reservation right now. I said, do you have any suggestions? You're a kid about the same age. Any suggestions for what the dad might do or the mom might do to help woo her back into the family? And my daughter's response was, you know, find some old pictures when the family was having fun. Just find those good times and, and maybe remind them of those. Work through some of those and try to pull out that bit of the heart. Again, good advice. But that's what God's saying here. I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. He's hearkening back to how God brought Israel through the wilderness to the promised land. Providing for her food every day. Providing water even from rocks. Winning her battles. Leading her. By fire at day and or night and cloud by day. That, that God's saying, let's, I, I'm going to, I'm going to appeal to her. I'm, I'm going to woo her. I'm going to allure her and I'm going to bring her into the wilderness. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And there I'm going to give her vineyards. And I'm going to make the valley of Achor. Um, Achor is the Hebrew word for, for, for pain or trouble. Um, it means that. So, I mean, it's, it's an actual place, but it's, it's a pun that's being made by Hosea. The valley of Achor, uh, trouble. I'm going to make the valley of trouble a door of hope. And then she's going to answer as in the days of her youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that a surprise ending? God says, I'm going to punish. I'm going to pull away. I'm going to do what's got to be done. But in the end, I'm going to bring my people back. And what we see here is an interweaving of law and grace. God's going to follow the law with Israel. He's going to do what he said he'd do. God had made it clear. God had said to him over and over, you do A, I will do B. You do A, I will do B. They did A, he's going to do B. But he's also going to do C. Because it's not just the law that he gave. It's also grace and mercy as he brings his people back. So that's the first trial. Now, I don't have as much time to get into the other trials, but I want to show them to you. You can study them on your own, and we'll look at it some. Trial number two is found in Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 through 19. And here's the trial of the other capital offense, the first one I showed you. Israel has broken their covenant with God. So it starts with a call to court. Here's the call to court. Hear the word of the Lord. O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy, riv, a lawsuit. Here it is, reeve. Because reeve, the Lord has against you. Um, with the, actually with the, yeah, inhabitants, ha'eretz of the land. So, hear this lawsuit, hear this complaint, hear this pleading that God's got against you. And that's the call to court. And then he sets out, there have been three general breaks of the covenant. Here they are. There is no faithfulness. There's no steadfast love. 
and there's no knowledge of God in the land. Those are all important. We are called to be faithful to God. This word faithfulness, faith, translated faithfulness, emet, is a very, very important word in the Hebrew. It's a trait. It's, a, it's an attribute of God himself. He is faithful. We are called to be faithful, but they were not faithful. Steadfast love, chesed in the Hebrew, steadfast love is a covenant loyalty. See, they were called to be faithful to God, but they were also called under the law to be faithful to each other. And we know within the communities they weren't. I mean, go back to the story of Ahab. King Ahab and Jezebel and Naboth in the vineyard. That was typical fare for them. The court systems weren't used to take care of their neighbors. They weren't faithful to their neighbors. They weren't faithful to the covenant. They didn't have steadfast love for each other and they didn't have a covenantal love for God. In fact, they had no knowledge of God at all. Um, this idea of, of knowledge, yada is the root in the Hebrew. Um, it, it means an intimate awareness. It's not just a head knowledge. It's a relationship. They, they, they didn't know God in a, in a related way, in a relatable way. And so you have here just a, a horrendous situation. And those are the three general violations of the covenant. Um, now, Deuteronomy 5.21 in the law, the law. But you stand here by me and I'll tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules you're going to teach people. That they may do them in the land that I'm giving them to possess. There was a responsibility to teach the law. There was a responsibility to impart knowledge of God. And the people had fallen down at doing it. So those are the three general covenant breaks. But then Hosea gives six specific breaks of the covenant gets real detailed here he says they're swearing lying murder stealing and committing adultery they break all bounds bloodshed follows bloodshed they're swearing you go back to the ten commandments the first three commandments don't have any other gods before me don't make any graven image and don't take the name of the lord your god in vain those relate to the kind of swearing that's being talked about here this swearing, alod, uh, I mean Allah, uh, alo, it's alo, the H doesn't sound. This swearing is, is um, not cussing, it's taking an oath by God's name or by the name of another God. It's like saying, I swear to God. When you're not swearing to God... <laughs> Um, you don't take oaths by someone else's name, by the name of God. And so they're violating those commandments. It's not just those lying. Lying, kachesh, lying. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. You're violating that one. They're lying. I mean, look at the two witnesses in the... Ahab's story, lying. That was typical of that era. Lying. Okay. What else? Murder. I mean, that's a gimme, right? I don't need to, thou shalt not kill. Stealing. Uh, again, another gimme. Thou shalt not steal. Committing adultery. Another gimme. Thou shalt not commit adultery. They're breaking all of the bounds of these commandments, but even beyond that, bloodshed follows bloodshed. That's a, a, a weird translation. Worthy of thunder. Um, this is actually uh, uh, Hebrew that, that says, I can't see it when I get that close, I'm sorry. Damim badamayim miyam. Yeah. So it, this is it. It's idolatry or an idol touches an idol 
They're worshiping idols. An idol touches an idol. Could also mean bloodshed follows bloodshed. Violation of a commandment, either way, a specific one. So you've got six specific covenant breaks. And then God gives the consequences. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Your land is laid waste. It's laid desolate. It's not going to be productive. That's Those are the consequences. Then the rest of this gives us the evidence for it and the judgment. And that's Hosea 4, 4 through a bunch. And uh, that's not something we have time to get into. But it's worth looking at. I would urge you to go home and do your homework and look at it at home. Hosea 4. Amos, Hosea 4, 4. Let me show you, give you a flavor for it. These are the, uh, this is the, the evidence in the judgment. Okay. Okay, don't let anyone contend. Don't let anyone accuse. My contentions with you, O priest. You'll stumble by day. The prophet will stumble with you by night. I'll destroy your mother. He says, let no one contend. Let no one accuse. This is not for you. This is for me, God. I'm the one contending. I'm the one who's accusing. I'm the prosecutor here. And I am contending, I'm suing you priests. I'm bringing you priests to court. No knowledge of God in the land? Priests, you're responsible. People don't understand the law? Priests, you're responsible. People are worshiping idols? Priests, you're responsible. Prophets getting paid to so-called give the word of God and aren't giving it accurately? You're responsible. And I'm going to destroy you. My people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. They've rejected knowledge. Because you, the priests, have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. You've forgotten the law of your God. I'm going to forget your children. And he just, he indicts them. You didn't teach it. So. You, you, you forgot it. So. And this has effects. How we live and behave affects us. Um, I think a lot of you know that I tried uh, the nation's uh, first opioid case against the pharmaceutical companies that had been uh, illegally selling and pumping out a lot of opioids. Uh, And the stories that went with that as I sat and met with the government officials that I represented, I represented the two counties in Ohio, the stories of them having to rent refrigerated truck units because their morgue didn't have enough room in it to keep the bodies before the autopsies because so many people were dying from the opioids. The families that were destroyed, the courts, they had to open up new to deal with the children that had to go into foster care where they didn't have enough foster care homes because of what the parents had done and the way their bodies had been ravaged by the opioids. The babies that are born to opioid-addicted mothers that are born addicted to opiates that have trouble living through it because it depresses the breathing system and it affected the development of their organs in utero. You read these horrible stories. And it happens. That's one of many examples. But the way we live affects the way we live. And God said it. God didn't set up all of these rules just because, oh, he's some goofy uncle who's got some instructions for us that he wants us to do. God set these rules up to help Israel be the Israel they could be. And if they had followed his rules, they would have been. But they didn't. 
And that same principle is true for you and me. Now, we're not Israel. I don't keep um, kosher when I eat. I'm not, I'm not living under that Old Testament covenant with God, but that doesn't mean God hasn't told me what is right and what is good. That doesn't mean I don't learn the principles from that covenant and learn what's productive and useful in my life. All right, I've got to finish up. Trial number three, Hosea 12, whoops, Hosea 12 through uh, 13, verse 1. This is for Israel's fraud and deceit. And it starts out with a call to court as well. The Lord has an indictment, a riv, a lawsuit against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He'll repay him according to his deeds. And then the, Hosea uses the contrast of the original Jacob and the Old Testament story in Genesis of Jacob. And how Jacob learned from his lesson and went from being a deceiver into being Israel who had found God. And he contrasts it with these people who didn't. These people who are Israel and they lost God instead of finding him. And so you've got that call to court, but his, the guilt is explained in those verses, verses 3 and follows. And you can read that when you've got time. If you choose. And then there's the ultimate judgment that's given. And the judgment ends in chapter 13 verse 1. When Ephraim spoke. Ephraim being Israel. There was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. But he incurred guilt through Baal. And he died. And that's the fruit. The poisonous fruit. That they were consuming. So, if that's God in trial, what are our points for home? What do I get out of this anyway? First one is just time out. Time out. Go back and remember that first desire that God expressed for his people in Hosea 2.2 in trial number one. She must remove her signs of prostitution from her face and her signs of adultery from between her breasts. She must transform herself she must quit behaving like she is. She must quit courting disaster, flirting with, with evil. And I, I, I just, I, you know, God wants what's best for us. That's not just because he's a harsh taskmaster. It's not just because he gets his feelings hurt. He's out for what's best for you and me. And we live with an understanding of the grace of God expressed in Christ. And that's glorious and that's wonderful. And I couldn't survive without it. But we must never forget the seriousness of the sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book for which he's famous, The Cost of Discipleship. And he said, don't ever use the phrase cheap grace. Because grace is not cheap. It cost God everything it ha- he had. God was willing to pay the ultimate price for that grace so that he could justly forgive us. And if we don't take our transgressions seriously, and yes, we've got grace. Grace upon grace, Paul says. But it's necessary. And it does not change the fact That when we dabble with sin, we have negative consequences in this life. Point for home number two. God's not blind. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Shema, Shamu, I guess is what it says there. Hear the word of the Lord. This is God's message. God's not just off binge watching season four of Fauda. I mean, God is integrally familiar with each one of us and he cares about you today. And the final point for home, I said, don't miss the interweaving of law and grace. 
There I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of trouble a door of hope. There she'll answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. That interweaving, that promise that in the end God is going to be merciful to Israel. That mercy extends to us. The law was violated. The law of Moses was violated. That justified death. But, but we live under the mercy of God with Jesus Christ. See, this is why passages, coach, passages like this John one that you're going to have so much to say, one of of coach's favorite passages from his fullness from God's fullness we have all received grace upon grace the law was given through Moses and it was good it was instructive it was useful but we have grace and truth through Jesus Christ that's the ultimate era in which we live that's why we have forgiveness that's why we have joy That's why even though we are unfaithful to God in our walk so many times, he's still gently trying to... Now, sometimes he may have to knock you down to your knees to get your attention. But his desire is to gently mold you into what you can be. And nobody is so far gone that God can't turn your life around by the mercies of Jesus Christ. And that is his desire. And that is his ultimate goal. And if we're caught in the valley of trouble, we must never forget the door of hope that is in Jesus. So that's the lawsuits in Hosea. Um, David Capes is going to do start Micah for us next week. Micah, his name is, who is like Yahweh? What a name. What a book. Let me bless you and we'll go to church. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask your blessings on all who hear this message. Father, it is very important to me that they not only understand the seriousness of sin and the way it can affect us in our lives, but that your mercy, your love, your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your forgiveness, your grace upon grace is not lost to us. Father, may our sin drive us to the cross of Christ in humble humility to to, to live within the shadow of that forgiveness. May we understand the riches of your love that took all of our unfaithfulness and all of our sin upon yourself to pay the ultimate price of death so that we could live in a resurrected life. We love you and adore you and we praise your name through Jesus our Lord. Amen.